You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. everyone and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. And now, a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Trend Micro Research runs um, a number of ingest activities. That's Mark Nunnikoven. He's the vice president of cloud research at Trend Micro. The research we're discussing today is titled New macOS Backdoor Linked to Ocean Lotus Found. So we get um, product uh, alerts. So when a Trend Micro product is detected, um, new malware, it sends it up. We run um, joint research with um, other academic researchers. We have agreements uh, with law enforcement, um, with a number of different areas around the world to try to pull in as much threat intelligence as we can. Um, And as a result of that, we see new samples um, like this particular document and um, backdoor um, for macOS uh, pop up on our radar. So let's uh, walk through this one. How does it work? How does one find it on their system? This comes through um, and it's starting off as a malicious Word document. So we see this quite common um, in that a Word document um, is downloaded uh, most um, commonly through email. Um, And as soon as the user opens up this Word document, it has this um, red screen with a big warning that says um, you need to activate, you know, compatibility mode to make sure that your version of Word can read this document. Mm. And of course, to enable 
compatibility mode, you have to run a macro, and that's an embedded piece of code that's in this document. Um, and in this case, it's malicious code. So we're supposing that probably this Word document came through a phishing attack to start? Yeah, yeah. We see, um, based on our research numbers, uh, depending on the month, we see anywhere from about 85 to 92 percent of all attacks are starting through phishing. Um, it is the number one vector to, to kick off an attack by far. And it's interesting, in, in your research, you published a, a screen grab of this alert, um, mm -hmm. and it really is innocuous. I mean, it makes you think that, uh, oh, it's just an older version, uh, uh, no, nothing to see here, just uh, something procedural and, and move on. Yeah, and I wish I had better news on that front, but cyber criminals are very, very good at researching um, what works for a hook, what works in a user interface so that you don't think twice. Um, it's not uncommon for people to receive documents that have either compatibility issues or need additional functions like macros enabled in a business setting. Um, so they're designing this to be um, you know, a blip on the radar, if that. Ideally, it's something you don't think twice about. You just click and go. They hook you and you enable your macros. What happens next? In the document, in this macro, um, is a whole bunch of obfuscated code. So they've tried to make this code uh, very hard to detect. Uh, but when you unpack it all, um, it ends up being a very simple Perl script. Um, now, Perl is still installed by default on everyone's Mac OS. Mm. So it's a safe way for an attacker to send um, a set of system commands. And these commands um, are uh, designed to install the backdoor. So this is what we call a dropper. Um, this is the code. It executes as this Perl script, detecting whether or not it has uh, root access or if it's just got normal user permissions. And then it tries to dig into the system as, w as much as it can and hide its tracks. And so let's walk through that. What exactly uh, does it do? How does it uh, hide itself? So the way it starts off is by doing that permissions detection, um, writing a couple files locally so that it can start to execute. Um, and then once it's in there, um, it starts to walk through, um, sort of feel itself out. So it's launched, uh, the dropper has launched itself and it looks to um, persist is its first thing. So it's looking to um, set up a startup, a launch daemon or a launch agent um, so that if you reboot your system, that it'll come right back online. So that's um, step one is persistence. It wants to make sure if it's doing this hard work that it can contain, uh, continue to be um, uh, on the uh, system as it goes. And, and it doesn't need root access to do that? No. So um, within macOS, you've got two layers, like in pretty much any Unix type system. Um, there's multiple layers of persistence. Um, you can have things at a system level that restart. You can also have things specifically in your user account that restart. Um, if you go through user preferences um, as a Mac user, you can look at um, your what's called login items. Um, and those boot up every time. It's not uncommon for um, tools, um, you know, something as simple as Skype, uh, like we're using now, or um, Spotify, to set itself to load um, at your preference um, on reboot. Um, and this is a functionality that the attacker's taking advantage of. Obviously, they'd prefer the system level load, uh, but if they, they can only get user, that's what they'll take. I see. So the, the code within the dropper, the strings within the dropper, they're encrypting those, yes? Yes. Um, so they, when the strings that start within the dropper, they're um, in the in the Word document. They're obfuscated, so they're not necessarily encrypted. Um, they're just hidden from detection. So that if your email gateway is looking for malware, um, it might not find it because they literally uh, encode every single character in that Perl script differently. They um, set it up separately, so you have to reassemble it. 
once it's um, established and once the um, dropper has um, gotten the malware in the backdoor in place, then it actually generates a unique encryption key so that your uh, infected system and the attacker's backend can have private and secure communications. This dropper is installed. Uh, where do we go from here? Yeah, once the dropper is installed, then it's uh, it pulls down its main uh, implant. So the idea of the dropper is to bridge that uh, Word document into the actual malware. Uh, so the dropper does the uh, the installation, um, it sets things up, and then it downloads um, the malware tool. Now, the malware tool is pretty straightforward. Um, it's basically a remote access tool. So this allows the attacker to look at basic um, system properties that you have running on your system. So it profiles your system. And it also allows the attacker to run commands on your system. And that's by far the most important piece. Um, but that first piece of finding out who's running, uh, whose system that is, is also really interesting. Is the suspicion that uh, they want to find out who you are to see if you're worth taking any farther? You got it in one. That's absolutely it. So the group behind this um, malware that's been attributed to this malware um, has been tracked for quite a while. First activities were starting to pop up in 2013 and 2014, um, and a number of different security companies and research teams have been looking at these. Um, this attacker. They've gone under various names from Ocean Lotus to APT32, um, and they're generally politically motivated. So it's not uncommon for them to um, verify a target before going any further. And one of the big challenges we see in the Mac world is by default, if you have a single user or the first user on a Mac, when you enter your full name, that actually shows up as your Mac's name. So you'll see this sometimes if you're on um, a conference uh, Wi-Fi or if you're on a hotel Wi-Fi, you'll see different people's Macs show up. So you'd see, you know, Mark Nunnikoven's MacBook. Right. Uh, because that's the default. So the attacker actually gets that name right out of the uh, gate with that initial profiling so they can have a good idea of whether they want to continue to the next phase. So let's go into some of the technical details of this back door. What's going on with it? Yeah, and this is where it gets interesting in how simple it is. Um, and this you know, speaks to sort of the uh, efficiency of attackers, is they tend not to build anything more than they need. Um, and we've already seen with the initial um, macro in the um, Word document that they're comfortable with scripting in uh, languages like Perl, which, again, are enabled by default on macOS. So after this malware sets up its encryption key so that it has that unique and secure um, connection back to uh, the command and control server for the attacker, um, it just allows them to run very simple commands on your, the uh, remote system. So they've got it set up where they can um, do some basic scripting levels, things like, you know, get file sizes, um, download and execute a file, or run a command in a terminal, or remove a file um, and get some additional um, info or a heartbeat. So to check to make sure the system is still online. And that doesn't sound like a lot of tools, but it actually enables quite a lot of functionality from the attacker's point of view. What sort of functionality are we talking about here? Can you give us some examples? For sure, yeah. So the, the easiest and most obvious is that they can um, uh, upload files from uh, the infected Mac to uh, the attacker. So if they know that there is a Word document or an Excel spreadsheet or something like that, they can upload that um, to themselves. So they can steal information directly off this system. The sort of innocuous one is the uh, run a command in the terminal as well as download and execute a file. Now, as soon as they can run a command uh, on the terminal, they can run anything that's running locally on the Mac. 
Um, and by default, we already have mentioned that Perl is running um, as a scripting language. Python is also available to them. So that means they can easily transfer small uh, size programs um, that let them do anything as far as monitor um, the uh, keyboard strokes if they wanted to. Um, they can look at the screens, what's being displayed right there. They can search your drive. They can expand to see what kind of network you're connected to. They can use the computer like you can um, sitting in front of it. And to be clear here, they can install and execute this software without requiring any sort of administrator authorization? Yeah, and they're going to run into the same challenges that you would as a user. Um, if they try to do some protected commands, they will need to elevate the privileges. But since they already have the ability to run anything like a standard user, that means any other vulnerabilities that are out there for that version of Mac OS, they can exploit and, and escalate. But in a scenario like this where there's a political motivation, a lot of the time we see the attackers don't actually require elevated privileges because what they're after here is very much information. Normally, a cyber criminal will be after resources or something they can convert into money. So, you know, they'll try to um, either take your data to sell it in the underground or hold your data ransom to sell it back to you. Or lately, we've seen a huge burst in cryptocurrency mining uh, where they're using your CPU to generate cryptocurrency for them. In this case, um, with a politically motivated attacker, they're normally looking for information. So if we you know, put our bad guy hat on and looked at um, you know, the CyberWire podcast, we'd be saying you know, they're looking for upcoming interviews and contact information. They're looking for content schedules. They're looking for anything that's unique uh, to your activities that they can leverage for um, uh, their gain. Hey, back off, man. I know. I'm just. I said, put my bad guy hat on. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, what what sort of um, uh, communications is going on between them and the command and control servers? Is there anything of note between those two uh, points of of contact? Yeah, so the interesting thing here is that um, because, uh, and I keep saying that simply because it's it's a fascinating case in simplicity, I find. It's a highly effective, highly simple setup here. But because the attacker has set up an encrypted channel between the infected system and the back end, we can see the amount of traffic, but we can't necessarily pull out the specific actions that they're taking. So we know there's a general heartbeat to ensure that the system's, you know, phoning home every once in a while and saying, hey, I'm still here, I'm infected, you can do stuff with me. Uh, but it really depends on the interactivity. This is not an automated system. So where we see um, ransomware is a highly automated crime, cryptojacking highly automated, this is a hands-on attack. So there's very little general traffic until there's an attacker behind their keyboard probing the system and running different commands on the system. And then you see an increase in encrypted traffic between the two. Hmm. Now, in terms of uh, folks protecting themselves against this, is this something that a uh uh, a standard, uh, you know, antivirus uh, software installation would tend to detect. Uh, eventually, yes. Hmm. So the challenge here is sort of the um, the mutation of this event of this document um, where they're getting that initial foothold. So it's a matter of you know, are you ahead of the curve with your security tools versus um, the attacker? But really, there's a couple main areas you want to focus on, and that's the first one's always phishing. You need to do strong email protection. Um, so that's using some security tools on the email gateway, but that's also training users um, to question when they click on a link or attachment if they're prompted to take action. So in this case, you click on your attachment and it's prompting you to take action. It's saying, hey, it's not compatible, enable macros. 
Well, don't. Um, I know that's easy to say, um, but realistically, um, macros are um, something that can be useful. But if you're getting um, email documents that are prompting you continuously to use uh, macros, more often than not, that's an attack. Um, so it's a user education piece here, as well as with the security controls on the gateway. And of course, your standard antivirus and endpoint protection is going to help out. Now, this is a, a macOS specific uh, instance here. Have you uh, have you tracked? Is there a Windows equivalent, or are they uh, hitting that side as well? With this particular um, threat actor, with this group, we haven't seen uh, a targeted Windows one yet, um, but we have seen that out in the wild. We've seen um, variations on this attack. We've seen very similar attacks where um, it's a Word document asking for additional content. Um, we've seen uh, PowerPoint documents that are asking you to click on links to load movies that are actually um, malicious attacks. Um, but I think it's it's also telling in sort of the targeted nature of this attack that it is going after Mac OS. We know traditionally and um, the norm here is for criminals to go for the biggest bang for their buck and based on market share um, and the type of data uh, being used in corporate settings, Windows tends to be a better investment for a criminal. Um, so that they're, the fact that they're going after Mac means that they know their target audience, um, their target set of victims is predominantly Mac users, which is why they've customized this tool. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, and I, I think it's fair to say that uh, on the Mac side, a lot of Mac users uh, sort of uh, hold their heads high and consider themselves to be so much less vulnerable, um, but uh, I think this points out that uh, that might not be the case. Yeah, and I think that's a fair statement. In general, Mac, you know, there is differences in the way the OS is built around security and user access. Um, but the history of Mac being, um, you know, giant quotes, less vulnerable um, is really one of economics. Mm. Uh, criminals are in this for the money. They're going to go uh, where they can make the most money the easiest. And for the longest time, Windows and its variants have had the majority of corporate market share and the majority of home user market share, um, which is why that's where criminals were focusing their efforts. It was an easy return. Now that Mac is gaining in market share and in specific target audiences like this one, um, we do see Mac being exploited um, more and more frequently. Now, it strikes me that this is a pretty targeted uh, attack here. Like, like These folks know who they're going after. Um, how do you think this research that you've done should inform those who are outside of, of that, uh, that bullseye? Um, how can they use this information to, to inform their general security approach? Yeah, I think if you're outside of this bullseye, it's uh, it's a wake up call that um, cyber criminals have shifted their tactics um, to one of luring you um, in either through phishing or through um, web uh, site prompts to take an action that looks like something innocuous. So we're all um, inundated by warnings throughout the day of various things that, you know, you need to change, this browser is not supported, or in this case, you know, this version of Word isn't supported. Um, and there's enough complexity around just using computers that cyber criminals have gotten wise to that. So I think the general advice to people is very much be aware when you're prompted to take an action um, that seems out of sequence. Um, it should be an extremely rare event that your version of Word doesn't work with a document that you're sent. Word has only fractured the format once in the past 30 years, um, <laughs> and you're sort of before that point or after that point. So it's rare that you should see these kind of prompts, even though it looks completely legitimate. 
So you should be aware of that as a user. And anytime you're asked to load different software or enable an additional feature or to log in again, we see that quite often with web attacks where you click on a link and it'll say, log into your Gmail credentials again. That should raise the, the sort of spidey sense so that you should question what's really going on. Our thanks to Mark Nunakoven from Trend Micro for joining us. The research is titled, New macOS Backdoor Linked to Ocean Lotus Found. You can read it on the Trend Micro website. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero-trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.